had a good fall break. If you don't have kids, you don't even know what that means. It's just like, I went to work this week. I don't know what you're talking about. But uh, welcome back. I know we got a lot of people still traveling back today, getting ready for tomorrow. And so just want to welcome you in this space. My name is Jason. Uh, a little prayer request. Pray I can get through this. I don't know if anybody else has kind of this going on. And so if I can keep my voice for the next uh, few minutes, that'll be good. Let me tell you about a couple things coming up that I really, really, really want you to be a part of. First of all, if you are not in a house group, you are missing out. Uh, we are in the midst of kind of our fall house group season, and it's just smaller groups that meet all over the city different week or different days of the week, and we'd love for you to be a part of one of those. It's not too late to get in one of those. It's never too late to get into a house group. So if you want to be a part of that, just go out to Next Steps when you leave here, and you'll see a house group banner and say, hey, I'd like to know more information about house groups. And here's one of the reasons that we love for you to be in house groups is we serve out of those groups. Not only do we create community and study and grow and pray and all those sorts of things, we serve our community out of those groups. And one of the big ways that we do that is we partner with one of our local schools, Gateway Elementary. It's kind of off the beaten path. It's for forgotten school, to be honest. They tell us all the time, like, thank you guys for coming over here and doing what you do. We are kind of the forgotten, you know, school in Metro. We're kind of off the beating path. So anyway, we do a trunk or treat. They do a thing called spooktacular reading. Isn't that great? Where they uh, put on like these reading clinics and all sorts of, you know, ghost stories and whatnot for Halloween. And so we partner with that event. And so what happens that night is they do their thing at school and then they come out the back doors where we have set up a trunk or treat that is fantastic and fabulous. So our house groups, individuals, all sorts of people show up, we dress up, and they get to walk this massive line and leave with way more candy than any one person needs. But that's what we love to do is just give away all that stuff. And so that is coming up on October 23rd. So here's what we need from you. If you can't be there for that, that's fine. You can still participate. In the next week or so, you can either drop it off at the offices or bring it with you next Sunday. We need two things. We need candy, so buy up that candy. I know Kroger has it on sale right now. And then we need books. We need gently used books. You don't have to go buy new books, but we also don't want the book that your child spent two and a half years chewing on. Uh, so make sure they're gently used because here's our goal, and this is, again, the above and beyond what we, we want to do for these kids. We want to make sure that every kid that comes through there even the siblings of kids that don't even go to school there. We want to make sure that every kid leaves with a book. And so bring those books, and we're going to sort through those, and then we're going to give those away along with all the candy and whatnot on that night. So you've got a week or so to gather in that candy and the books. Um, one last thing, if you're here, you're one of the other elements of worship that we bring every week is our giving. And so if you're a partner here, you know what this means. If you're a guest, this has nothing to do with you, but we want to encourage you to give as well. So we give with our time when we go out and our serve, when we serve our community, like with Trunk or Treat, and then we give of our means as well so that we can be, as a church, wildly generous. That's part of that. So anyway, I just want to welcome you. We're going to dive into part four. I'm going to pray for us of the chase this week. Another one that I think is just going to hit home, and you'll be blessed uh, by being here as I have been blessed this week, kind of reading through uh, some of these things. So let's pray together, and we'll get going. Father... We just pray that in these next few moments that you will, as we sang about earlier, uh, you'll release freedom. Father, I know that in a, in a crowd this size that there's somebody that is just feeling the weight of some of the things we're going to talk about this morning in some way, form, or fashion. God, I know there's somebody here this morning that is being hindered by the element of their past or being hindered by an element of failure or mistake. Father, will you bring about freedom in this place this morning through this dear text of John 21? 
God, I pray that you just use me to, to, to say what it is that you want heard and that you want to take root in the hearts of our people. I pray that you give me a voice for the next few minutes to do that. Father, I'm so grateful for Jesus. I'm so grateful for the atmospheres that he sets. I'm grateful for the restoration he extends. God, I'm grateful for the reinstation that he gives me constantly. And so, Father, we just pray that all those things, that your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, and your call comes ringing through this morning. We pray this through your son's name. Amen. We've been in a series called The Chase, and really the bottom line to the whole thing is this. It's don't get got. And so we don't want you to get got. We don't want you to have something uh, sneak up on you and get you. We don't want it to kind of shackle you or burden you down. But we also don't want you to chase the wrong things only to get to a place where you capture that thing, you catch that thing, and then you figure out, I got got. It's really not what I I thought it was going to be. So we've spent several weeks now. If you remember week one, we talked about how to discern or how to distinguish counterfeits. Chasing that isn't real. Once you capture it, it's like, oh, that turned out not to be what I thought it was. So how do we begin to determine what's real, what's not? And you can go back and listen to that. And then week two, we moved into this being chased into exhaustion. And I think this has been the favorite lesson that I've done in quite a while for everybody because you caught on to something, and that was take a nap. I don't know if you remember that. I gave everybody permission. Go home, take a nap. Some of you just need to go home and take a nap. You are exhausted. And when we are exhausted, we say, we think, we believe, we do stupid things. And so sometimes we just need to, in the name of God, go and take a nap because we have been chased into exhaustion by something that we think is a big deal that many times turns out to be a no deal. It ends up being nothing. And so again, to have that moment of clarity, God says, hey, let it out, scream, yeah, but take a nap, rest, seek my presence in those things. And we spent week two talking about how to avoid being chased and pinned down, hold in the cave of exhaustion. And then last week, we talked about this concept of what entices you, being chased by our desires, being chased by the things that we want. And again, only to get there to figure out, you know what, this is really not what God has called me to. It's not the place that God wants me. And so this week, we're going to hit another element that I believe is going to affect, it's going to speak to most everybody in here on some level today. I think it chases all of us at various times in various ways, and it's going to take on several different forms that we're going to talk about this morning. But to kind of start, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, I'm originally from Kentucky. Now, I preface that by saying I'm not one of the the last five years into Nashville move-in people. I've been here a long time, but I'm originally from Kentucky, which means growing up, I grew up on a steady diet of two things. I grew up on a steady diet of Kentucky basketball, and I, yeah, yeah, I hear you. And I grew up on a steady diet of horse racing. I lived in Versailles for quite a while, and the most beautiful country of horse racing farms you've ever seen, much nicer than most of our houses. It's just unreal, the atmosphere that is there for horse racing and all that. And so I've been to Keeneland a few times and just get to see these thoroughbreds up close and just are really neat. So as a result of that, I'm always interested each year in the Kentucky Derby. And so this last May was the 145th running of the Kentucky Derby. I know some of you even go up to the Derby. Uh, we do Derby parties. But there was something really fascinating that happened this last year. And it wasn't so much what happened on the day of, but in the days that followed that kind of continued this story and the reason I want to tell it this morning. But if you remember, there was a winner by the name of Maximum Security. He was, the, uh, he was kind of the, the favorite horse, 
strong horse. This horse was destined, they said, to be the next triple crown. No one could touch this horse. It was just as purebred as you could, you could imagine or want or ask for. Well, sure enough, maximum security wins the Kentucky Derby, the 145th running. Only to find out that in the next few moments, there were several jockeys that had put in a petition, had put in a complaint, and filed an objection that there was some illegal action that had taken place in one of the turns. So the derby officials go back and they take a look at all this, and sure enough, there was some illegal bumping or something that had to do with with something that was not illegal that allowed him to get a little bit of an edge. And so they came back out and they announced that maximum security had been disqualified, making Country House the 65 to 1 odds the winner that day. And everybody was in disbelief. Everybody was in dismay unless you bet on Country House. And then you're like counting the money. But that was the moment. And everybody was like, oh, no. And if that wasn't a headline enough, the real twist to this story takes place a few days later. For anybody that knows, there's three big races, and so the Preakness was next. And so Gary West, who is the owner of Maximum Security, comes out in the news and says that Maximum Security is no longer going to run in the Preakness. And everybody went, why? Why would this horse who has been trained and destined to do great things, and there's still money on the line, right? I mean, you can still win that and win a lot of money. And this is what he said. If he can't win the Triple Crown, there's no reason for him to even run. You're like, but this horse was destined to run in these races. And he says, it doesn't matter anymore. And I wonder if some of us, I wonder if we respond to adversity. I wonder if we respond to shortcomings I wonder in our walk with Jesus in these moments where we fail and we will and we do, we say it often around here that we are imperfect people. We don't have it together. And at any given moment, it could fall apart even more than what it seems at the moment. But I wonder sometimes if in these moments where there's something that isn't clicking right, there is a mistake that is made, there's this strength that we don't have for the moment, do we respond in a similar way to Jesus? Because we experience some level of failure, we experience some level of inadequacy, we look in the mirror and we go, you know, I just don't have what it takes. We have some sort of limitation. We experience a moment or a season of weakness. And for some of us, it's a significant thing. I mean, it could be a significant weakness. I wonder if in those moments, we're just as quick as Gary West to throw in the towel and say, well, because of this... There's really no reason for me to continue pursuing and walking toward this. That we feel like that whatever that flaw is and wherever it came from and whatever caused it disqualifies me from continuing to serve in an effective way. Now, there's, there's several ways this can take form. So let me just throw a few of them out to see if you identify. For some of us, we look at, at our lives and we go, well, you know, I'm kind of past my prime. I, I am quickly coming to grips that I'm past. If I ever had a prime, I'm, I'm rapidly like moving right on past it. And we go, you know what, I'm just too old. 
I'm too old to start a ministry. I'm too old to be involved in that. I'm too old. I don't have the energy. I think about our trunk or treat. I had a, a guy who, who came to us several years ago, and he was, at that time, he's moved, since, moved to Florida since then. I guess that's what old people do, move to Florida. But he moved to Florida, and he came, and he said, man, I, I keep hearing you talk about needing people in our kids' ministry, but he said there's two problems. Number one, I don't like kids. And I said, like, well, stop right there. That's, that's the biggest problem. He said, but I'm just too old, man. I won't relate. But you know who it was that would bring the most biggest bags of candy through the door for trunk or treat? It was him. But sometimes we lock into that. Well, I'm just too old. For some of us, we say, you know, I'm too young. Too young. I'll grow into it. But right now, my voice just won't be heard. It's just noise. And so I'm just too young to really do anything effectively. I'm really, I'm really too young to do anything that matters, and so that's one form that it takes. For some of us, we feel like that, that you know what, I just I can't step into what I need to because of it. And actually, and here, here's, here's the way it manifests itself. I just don't know enough. I'm either new to this, and I don't know enough about Jesus. I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't know the answers to all the questions that someone might ask me. Because I'm new to this, or better yet, some of us have said, I've been around this for a long time, and I should know more. And so we go, that's embarrassing that I don't know some things. And so I walk away, and I go, because I don't know enough, because I don't feel like I'm equipped enough. I gave somebody this last week permission to use three words that are so good. I don't know. And it's okay to say that, but because we don't know enough, because we feel like, you know what, I, I just, I don't have it up here, and, and, and what if somebody, it, it locks us into this place, and that's a way that it manifests itself. For some of us, you feel like that you have failed. You feel like that you have, let's use a church word, you have sinned. You have made a mistake that is so big in the past that there is no way that God has any use for you in the future. It's that moment when you go, if everybody that sat around me this morning knew that it was there, they'd get up and move. I got to keep this under wraps because I finally found a house group that I kind of like. And if I let this out, that this is in my past, I'll be homeless without a house group. And so it manifests itself in this moment where we bottle this up and we keep these things hidden because we feel like that I have failed God so greatly in the past, there's zero chance that there's any use for me in the future. Let me mention one more. Maybe some of you have been so hurt so deeply by someone else, maybe even another Jesus follower that you think to yourself, there's no way I can step back into that. There's no way that I could be used in any sort of capacity because of the level of scar that exists. And so if one of those even comes close this morning to describe how you feel, I got some really good news for you because out of this passage in John 21, we're going to find one theme, and you're going to hear me say this 10 times this morning. And here it is, that Jesus' call is greater than my fall. That Jesus' call on your life is greater than your fall. I don't even know what your fall is. I don't know what your shortcoming is. I don't know what your mistake is. I don't know where your inadequacies are. I don't know what your weakest at, but I can tell you this, that Jesus' call on your life and your future and what he has for you in the present and in the tomorrow is greater than anything you can fill that last blank in. 
And we're going to see this in John 21. Let me set the scene. In John 21, Jesus has been crucified. Resurrection has happened. There is a buzz around the city and in the countrysides that this man that everyone saw publicly crucified has come back to life. There was an empty tomb. He is now appearing. Jesus is appearing in various places, and he's visiting with various people, some followers, some families, some disciples, and he wants to do something. He wants to ensure that, that the resurrection, the story of the resurrection, the account of the resurrection could not be mistaken. So he wants to show his face, and he wants to visit with enough people that would give an adequate testimony, an eyewitness of this, this moment where he would concrete in for the rest of time that this is more than a myth. I mean, here we are still talking about this. That the resurrection was, was the moment that gave Jesus all the authority and all the power. And so this is what's happening. He's popping up in these places and he's meeting with people. And he says, I need you to go tell. I need you to, to do this. I need you to meet me here. We've got more to talk about. And so he's, he's making his rounds. Now, the disciples, he told, the ones that were closest to him, kind of his, his inner circle that he's really going to depend on in the upcoming days to launch this church that we now are a part of. He tells them before the resurrection, but he also tells them after the resurrection, I need you to go to Galilee and wait on me there. And so now the disciples, at least part of them, have made their way to Galilee and they are waiting on Jesus. So in these moments, here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus, in these moments, is tackling things like doubt. If you remember, he has a, a conversation with one of his disciples named Thomas that's just doubting. I don't believe any of this. This is too far-fetched. And Jesus walks in and says, here's the deal. Look at the scars. Put your hands there, which I think is a weird thing. Like, you know, stick your finger in the nail hole. That's like a weird thing. And, but Jesus does what it takes to deal with, with Thomas's doubt. He's dealing with people being scared. I mean, they're running for their life. They're seeing people begin to be persecuted. They just saw their leader crucified, and now he's coming back in the resurrection saying, death can't hold this down. So he's dealing with, with people running scared, and then he deals with the scars that linger from some mistakes enter Peter. If you don't know anything about Peter, Peter was the most boisterous, the most vocal of all of Jesus' followers. He's the one that said, you know what? Even if the rest of these clowns forsake you, I will never, I will go to death for you, Jesus. And it wasn't but a few moments into the process of the crucifixion that Peter's found denying who Jesus is. Aren't you the guy that runs with Peter? No, it's not me. You got the wrong guy. So in this moment, he's dealing with some scars. And so here they are. They're in Galilee. They're waiting for Jesus. And Peter decides to go fishing. That's not recreational. Peter's a professional fisherman. If you remember back in the early callings when Jesus first called these guys to his commission, they were found fishermen. It's what they did. That's what they'd grown up doing. They owned all the gear, all the riggings, all the boats. They were professional fishermen. So Peter talks to the other six that are there in attendance with him in Galilee. He says, hey, let's go fishing. Now, I don't know if Peter's planning on going back to this permanently. I don't know if his wife came in and said, listen, dude, enough pouting. You got to get out of the house for a while. I don't know if it's a moment where, you know what, they're running short on food, and Peter decides, you know what, I can take care of this. Let me just take the gang. We'll, we'll make sure that we're taken care of for the next few, few weeks. I don't know if it's a moment where they're, like, running short on money. But for whatever reason, here's what I know, that Peter runs back in this moment. He runs back to what he knows and what he's comfortable with. And I know that in the moments that I have faced some of my biggest failures, you know where I run? I run to what I know and what I'm comfortable with. And so in this moment, this is the atmosphere 
that Peter finds himself in with these other guys. And so here they are. They fish all night. They haven't caught anything, which is really embarrassing since these guys are professional fishermen, know the water better than anybody. So early the next morning, some guy is standing on the seashore. They don't know who he is. They're a ways off, and they can't tell who it is. And I love this moment because it's a moment where we kind of get to see Jesus' sense of humor. So he shouts out to them. He says, hey, friends, have you not caught anything? Here's basically what he says. Where's all your fish? Well, they can't see who it is, and so they yell back, kind of dejected, going, no, we didn't catch anything. I mean, can't you see? They haven't recognized him. And Jesus calls back out. He says, well, have you tried the right side of your boat? It's the moment they had to look at each other and say, have we tried the right? We've gone back and forth all night. He says, try the right side of the boat. So they put their nets out the right side of the boat. And it says immediately, the net was filled with large fish. In fact, it says 153 large fish. And this is the moment where John, the one that Jesus loved so dearly, says, I remember this moment. I know what's going on here. That's that's Jesus. And I love Peter. Peter kind of throws his garments off and just swan dives in. They're like, well, if you'll give us a second, we'll kind of troll over there to it. He's like, no, I'm gone. And so Peter swims ashore where he has this encounter with Jesus, with the other guys, and he finds a moment when he gets to the shore where Jesus has prepared breakfast. And he invites them. He says, hey, bring a few of the fish that you caught, and let's add to the meal. Now, I think this is more than breakfast on the bayside. I think Jesus was intentionally, and you're going to see it in just a second. I think Jesus is intentionally setting an atmosphere for something. He is setting an atmosphere for not only restoration, which is typically what we go to this text for, to talk about how you know, Jesus you know, restores Peter in this moment. i got another theory on that I'm going to share. But I think he's setting an atmosphere for reinstation. I think he's setting an atmosphere where he says, Peter, this is the moment I'm going to reinstate you for the long haul. Even down to the fire he fixes. Look at this. Verse 19. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals where the fish on it and some bread. I didn't catch this until this last week. The fire of burning coals is only used in one other place in Scripture. That word, that word phrase, is used in one other spot throughout the the text. You know where that is? It's in John 18. It says that in that moment when Jesus was being led away to be crucified, the guards warmed themselves along with Peter beside a charcoal burning fire, the exact same fire that he warmed himself and denied Jesus was the exact same fire that Jesus builds for him in this moment. And so when Peter walks up and he smells that charcoal, he knows that smell because he'll never forget that smell. 
He knows that, you know what, Jesus could have built a wood-burning fire. He could have done a lot of things, but he sets an atmosphere to remind him that that moment back there around a similar fire does not get to define you. Jesus uses a similar environment where Peter had his biggest failure to give him his biggest vote of confidence. Not so much even on a personal level as what he does for him publicly. So here's the the scene. They eat, and Jesus begins a conversation that includes Peter, but it includes the other people. The other disciples who had walked with Jesus, walked with Peter, had known about Peter's failure. He, he, He gathers everybody and he says, let's have a conversation that you desperately need to hear, Peter, but so do the rest of you. And here's the conversation starting in verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Hang on to that. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, then take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he was asking him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Now, what's going on here? I mean, Jesus keeps asking a similar question. If you know anything about the language here, we know that he uses a couple different words. He uses agape love, which is kind of this sacrificial love. But he also uses phileo, which is kind of this brotherly love, like Philadelphia And there's this exchange back and forth where Peter is emphatic by the end of this. Jesus, you know that I love you. Now, all that's another lesson for another day. Let's get to what I think is happening here so that we can make application of this, so that we can begin to, again, step into the freedom that is offered in this moment. I mean, is Jesus simply making sure that that, that Peter's love is real this time? I mean, even Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know my heart. You know where this is coming from. So it has to be more than that. Is Jesus reminding him that, well, since you denied me three times, I need to hear I love you three times. I I think it's more than that. Here's what I think it is. I think that what Jesus is doing in this moment is giving Peter the ultimate boost of confidence in front of his peers, in front of the team, that in the moment that he denied Jesus, he also failed them. And he knew, and Jesus knew that that this is the gang that's going to launch the church. This is the gang. There's a lot riding on this moment. It is a a, a public reminder that, guess what, Peter? Oh, and by the way, for you other guys that may doubt Peter's sincerity, that may doubt whether or not Peter belongs in the circle anymore, he looks at the other guys and he says, I want to remind all of you that my call is bigger than your fall. That my call, Peter, guys, Peter's call is bigger than his fall. And so you've got to let this go. It's a boost of confidence so they can step in. So follow me for just another second on this. I don't think this is simply about restoration. And here's why. 
We know that, that Jesus had previously visited Peter somewhere between the moment of resurrection, presumably somewhere between him visiting Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Then we see that, that Jesus encounters two disciples on, his, on the road to Emmaus. He tells them, hey, go back and tell everybody there's a meeting coming. And then we find out in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul refers back to that meeting. So we know the meeting happened. I think that it's reasonable to assume here that Peter had already been forgiven of this stuff. Here's why. Peter hops out of the boat. If he didn't feel like he was in good standing with the Lord, why in the world would he want to get there any quicker than the boat was going to take him? I think the moment of personal forgiveness had already happened. But that wasn't translating into confidence. Peter was saying, listen, I'm, I'm kind of grasping personal forgiveness. I kind of get that. The Lord and I, we've had our moment, but I'm still not confident to step back into the call. I'm still not confident in taking my seat back at the table. I'm still not conf confident, and neither are they. I see the way they look at me. I'm not sure that they understand that, 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 that we're in good standing. And I think Jesus says, all right, well, let's have another moment. I think that, that the fact that, that Peter denied him and is restored, I think that's, that's already said and done. So here's what, I, again, I think that, that, that this is to, to restore Peter publicly in the eyes of his, of his fellow disciples so that everyone would be on the same page. And again, it wasn't that he was dealing with forgiveness as much as he was dealing with the, the feelings that linger in the failure. Now, I don't know about you, but there are moments that, that I can kind of sort of step into this forgiveness arena, but my confidence is so shaken, and every time I step back into, you know, another arena that God has called me to, I am reminded, and I go, I know I'm forgiven, but I still don't feel adequate. I still don't feel forgiven. I still don't feel that this is in the past. And Peter's failure was a, a public one. One that all the disciples would have been aware of. And again, I think Jesus is saying, let me publicly demonstrate <clears throat> the fact that Peter is fully restored to his call. And I don't know about you, but this is something I need to hear. Because like Peter, I fail, and I fall, and I fall hard, I fall regularly, and forgiveness from Jesus is not something that I don't necessarily, I don't question that, but I need to know that my failure, my fall is not the final. I need to be reminded so they have this reinstatement moment, and Jesus wraps all this up with a simple phrase. He says, then here's the deal, guys. Verse 19, he says, follow me. Are we all good? We cleared this up? Follow me. So what's the take home for this for us? I think that some of us have not only been chased off of the spot of confidence, I think that some of us have not only been chased off the spot of confidence in our faith and our walk, but we have been chased back into the water. 
we have been chased back into the boat. We've been chased into going fishing. We have been deceived in believing that fishing is all that's left for me. And while I get Jesus' forgiveness and, you know, I hope that I get in heaven, I'm just not sure I have a place in any sort of capacity when it comes to my calling anymore. Forgiveness, I hope so. But usefulness, I'm not sure. And I just want to tell you this morning, that is not true. It's not true. So let me give you a couple of takeaways on Jesus' overcoming this feeling. Number one, own it, but don't dwell on it. Own it, but don't dwell on it. See, I think there's a way that we can take our mistakes and our faults and all those things, our failures serious, but we don't have to let it own us. We don't have to let it become our identity. We don't have to dwell on it. I think there's a couple mistakes we make in this arena sometimes. I think, first of all, I think what happens at one end of the spectrum, we kind of just ignore it. We look at a, 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 a massive failure, a flaw, some sort of inadequacy we have, a, a maybe a sin issue, a bad habit. We look at that, and we just act like it doesn't exist, and that's on one end of the spectrum. Or better yet, what we do is we, we excuse it. We make excuse for it, or we explain it away, or here's one, we rationalize it. Well, you know, I mean, it's okay, right? And here's the problem with that. If we're on that end of the spectrum, the problem with that is it never goes away. It's kind of like a splinter in the hand. Several years ago, I got a splinter kind of in my elbow, and I was like, ah, you know, I couldn't get it out. I thought, you know, at some point it'll come out, and it didn't, and it didn't. I finally had to go to the dermatologist, and it was a whole big process because I let it fester. I let it kind of stay there. And I think on one end of the spectrum, some of us do that with our stuff. We don't, we don't even own it. We ignore it. We excuse it. We rationalize it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, some of us live in this world. We dwell on it. Oh, and we obsess over it. We, it, it, it paralyzes us. It, it defines us. It becomes our identity. And so even though we've kind of taken the appropriate steps and, you know, we've kind of, you know, we've had our moment with, with Jesus and we have confessed and, man, we've changed. We're trying to do everything that we can. We're dealing with it. But even though we do that, the mistake is still there. And that's all I wake up every day and I see when I'm dressing in the mirror. I'm just like, oh, there it is again. I, you know, and it ends up owning our day. And Peter does a really good job of living in this moment where he avoids those two extremes. He certainly doesn't try to excuse. He knows what he's done. But he also doesn't dwell on it because we see the next chapter. So here's the encouragement this morning as I kind of read through this. Don't dwell on it. Own it. Deal with it. Get help with it. Figure out a way to kind of capitalize and, and move to the next square on it. Don't ignore it, but don't dwell on it. The second encouragement I see out of this is this. We've got to get to a place where we love Jesus for who he is more than what he does. You remember how this conversation starts? This conversation says, Peter, do you love me more than these? What's he talking about there? Do you love me more than these? There's a couple possibilities. Maybe he says, do you love me more than these guys love me? Well, that's not in keeping with, with Jesus' teaching. He says, you know, don't compare yourself to one another. You know, anyway, if anything, you know, the, the last shall be first and first, shall, you know, just you, you keep your eyes locked in on me. So I don't think he's asking them public, him, him publicly, do you love me more than these guys? 
The other possibility is maybe he was saying, do you love me more than you love them? Kind of this brotherly love, which, you know, Jesus talks about from time to time that, you know, you got to love me and my call more than family. Do you love me more than these guys? And that still doesn't settle. Here's what I think he does. I think he points to this massive catch of fish that he has just provided for them this beautiful scenery, the boat, everything that goes with this, because undoubtedly when they caught that big load of fish, and by the way, the nets didn't even break, it was money in the bank, big time. And I think what he wanted to know was, do you love me more than all of this? Do you love me more than what I just did and provided for you? Natalie Grant wrote a song And I think the chorus hits this so much better than anything I could say. She wrote a song called More Than Anything, and here's what she says. She says, help me want the healer more than the healing. Help me want the Savior more than the saving. Help me want the giver more than the giving. She says, help me want you, Jesus, more than than anything. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be grateful and look to Jesus for the healing and the saving and the giving. And when he does those things, which he will do, we will return that in praise. But we've got to love Jesus. And I think this is what he's asking Peter. Peter, do you love me regardless of what it is I provide for you? Whether you receive anything from me or not, Do you love me? Guys, I think this is one of the reasons that prosperity gospel is so dangerous. Because I think when we emphasize what Jesus can do for you more than who he is, we run a really dangerous line of falling in love with the benefits of Jesus more than the need for Jesus. And this moment, I think Jesus says, listen, I... (laughs) It's about to be a really rough ride for you. I need to know, do you love me more than what it is I can provide or what it is I will do for you because that's going to be the love that will stand the test of time. There's a real easy way to figure this out in your life. So here it is. It's a question. If Jesus were to take away my blank, would it cause me to love him any more or any less? If Jesus were to take away my job, would it cause me to love him less? If Jesus were to take away my house, would it cause me to love him any less? Would, if Jesus were to take away my health, my IRA, my family, would it cause me to love him any less? If Jesus were to take away my neighbor's tumor, would it cause me to love him any more? It's this moment where we got to soberly look at this, where we got to say, Jesus, I love you more for who you are than what it is you do for me. One more quick takeaway. He, he ends the text with saying, follow me, but he also gives some encouragement. We got to get busy. It's this moment where Jesus says, all right, we have dealt with our stuff. We've got it all out there. We have appropriately and publicly, we have dealt with this stuff. We have made sure that everybody's on board. I know that you love me more than, than what I can provide. Now it's time to get to work. Every time that Peter answered him, Jesus, you know I love you. He gives him a command. He gives him an encouragement. He gives him a challenge. He gives him something to do. 
He says, feed my sheep, tend my, my lambs, tend my people. It's all going back to the greatest command he had already given them. It was this, what? Love God and love people. He says, get busy living into the call. Enough fishing. Enough wondering if you're good enough. Enough wondering about your past. Let's get busy. Peter, John, you other guys, your call is greater than your fall. And if you look at the results, you turn the page. We get into Acts. We just did a series on Acts. We see the church explode with Peter at the forefront. Thank God that Peter understood in that moment what I fail to understand so many times is that my call is greater than my fall. If you guys will stand with me as we end this morning. I know that there are some of you this morning, this is how we're going to end. We're just going to end with song. and I want you to know that this, this dealing with our past and our inadequacies and our weaknesses and our sin, and our, sometimes that can set heavy. And like Chris said earlier, I mean, this, is a, this is a place of freedom. And so we want you to know that this morning freedom can be found. It can be found in, in confession where we just come and say, man, I blew it. I blew it. If it makes you feel any better, I'll tell you. I blew it 17 times this week. I keep counting. No, I don't really, but... I'll blow it 12 times today. But that's heavy. For some of you, you just, you identify with that. I've excused and I've rationalized and whether it's my age or my hat, I mean, there's a lot of things that can fill in that gap. And I, I, I don't want to do that anymore. For some of you this morning, you have run to the other side of the spectrum where you, it has become who you are. There's something back here that is defining you here that is keeping you from here, keeping you from stepping into the presence, the presence of God, but also the present. For some of you, you probably feel like Gary West. Well, I mean, I can't win the triple crown. That's what I've been told anyway. You know, we used to have a system where we'd say, man, that's going to earn you a star in the crown. And we go, well, I can never get as many crowns and stars, and so I don't even know why I try. I just encourage you, don't, don't take that out of the room with you this morning. Keep telling yourself, begin to believe it, because Jesus, I think, would set a charcoal fire up for you, even in the place, a reminder of your biggest failure to give you your biggest vote of confidence that says, Jason, your call is greater than your fall. I want to encourage you with this, and I'm going to pray for you. And if, if we can pray for you, there's people back at Respond. There are shepherds over here. And I want you to know this is a place of prayer. So in this last song, if you want to ask for that, or as you walk out, just say, hey, can I, can I get a minute? Find somebody with a red lanyard and say, can I, just, can I pray? Can I be prayed for? Can I, can I get something off my chest this morning? But I want to give you this encouragement. Stop being so afraid of what could go wrong never step into the excitement of what can go right. Stop being so afraid because of whatever that exists back here that you don't experience what God can, will, and wants to do 
out here. Jesus' call is greater than our fall. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning that my failures and my inadequacies, my shortcomings, my sin, my blatant disregard for who you are and what you've called me to do and my obedience, it lacks. But even that doesn't keep me from being pursued by you, from being used by you, being loved by you. So God, not only this morning will you allow me to wrap my mind around how you could forgive and continually and constantly and regularly forgive me, but will you give me a vote of confidence sitting around my charcoal fire today? Will you give me a vote of confidence that lets me know that I am usable, that I am worth something, that I am valuable to the call, I'm valuable to the kingdom, I am valuable to Wellhouse, I am valuable to my family, I'm valuable in my workspace, I'm valuable in my community. I have a voice that is valuable because my voice speaks of you. God, help us to stop being afraid of someone finding out we're not perfect. Let's just wear a t-shirt that says that I'm not perfect. Neither you get over it. But I serve a God who is, and he perfectly loves me. And he has perfectly given a sacrifice of Jesus, and he's given me reminders through Jesus that I can not only be restored, I can be reinstated because my call is greater than my fall. Thank you for that reminder this morning. We pray this through your son's name.